twice weekly podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, airing both in audio and video every Tuesday and Friday. We now are well into our 300th episode, six years of this phenomenal production crew. My colleagues and friends, Ty and Drew and Travis and Brandon come here twice a week, every week for six years to ensure, sometimes more than twice a week, I think we actually have five interviews this week. We like to hold a couple in reserve in case one of us gets COVID or the flu. But it's been our honor every week to bring to you insights, not just from Franklin Covey's thought leaders, people like Stephen M. R. Covey and Chris McChesney and Corey Kogan and Todd Davis and Lena Renee and Curtis Bateman, Marche Barney, but also people outside of Franklin Covey that we think share similar values and a similar passion and mission to make all of you better leaders. That's Franklin Covey's goal. As the world's most trusted leadership firm, we have a great passion to also shine our spotlight onto other people in the spirit of Dr. Covey, our co-founder's idea around having an abundance mentality. We want to make sure that you become a better leader in the workplace, a better leader in your family, a better leader on foundations or boards, whatever role that you might be a formal or informal leader in, which is why today I'm both delighted and horrified we have the world-renowned um, clinician, uh, Lindsay Gibson, who is a um, profound author, and today she has joined us on what is her second book that has sold just shy of a million copies. The title of her book is Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Lindsay, welcome to On Leadership. Oh, thank you for having me, Scott. It's wonderful to be here. So, Lindsay, first things first. When you set out to write my biography, how difficult <laughs> was it to actually encapsulate all of my drama and trauma in this book titled Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, How to Heal from Distant rejecting or self-involved parents. What was that journey like? Well, first of all, it's, it's funny that you say that because so many of my readers have written to me and said, how did you get in our house when I was growing up? Or when did you meet my mother? <laughs> so I, I really wasn't tracking you, Scott. Um, that was purely coincidental. I uh, just want to uh, you know, put out that, that disavowal. Um, wasn't wasn't stalking you. <laughs> well, it felt like it sometimes. Uh, Lindsay, you are a clinical psychologist. This is actually your your second book. You know, when I read your book, I wasn't sure starting out whether I thought it would uh, describe me as a parent. My wife and I have three young boys that are nine, eleven, and thirteen. I also was raised in a family with two parents in the house, and I didn't swing one way or another. And I feel like I'm. Um, uh, self-aware enough to know what things relate to me and what don't. But I, fortunately, I didn't find an obsession with it in terms of describing my own style. I didn't immediately sell my parents out and say, oh my gosh, this is my mom or my, my, my father. I think all of us do the best we can with the upbringing we have, with our own psychological balance or baggage and our own maturity. And so I found the book to generally be equal parts horrifying and inspiring. I could read three or four pages, kind of set it down, and just do an assessment. How much of this is my wife? How much of this is me? How much was my parents or her parents? And fortunately, I found their kind of equal responsibility to go around. Um, I did not feel any less about my mom or my dad. What's the general response you get from readers in terms of 
emailing you, messaging you, calling you and saying, oh my gosh, this is me as a parent. I've learned so much versus, oh my gosh, this was my parents. Yeah, I, I would say the, the vast majority would be people who uh, were relating to it from the standpoint of this was my parent. Um, occasionally, but it, it's really a very small number of people. I have heard from people who have found themselves in the book as parents or uh, their children have uh, told them that they need to read this book and that, you know, they're that's a condition for their relationship going forward. And they have, you know, very sincerely contacted me to see if they could get some help with that. Now, I typically um, don't work with the parents. I work with the adult children of the parents. But I am so sympathetic to any parent who, you know, looks back on what they did and who they were, you know, usually when their children are small and see some of these characteristics. Um, I know that, you know, if I had had uh, my child when I was in my early 20s, I would have been much less conscious of what I was doing with him. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's mostly the, the adult children that I hear from. Well, I was in my 40s when we had our three sons, so there is no excuse to me. Last night, I was re-skimming the book in preparation for today's interview, and I uh, irresponsibly asked our three sons, on a scale of one to 10, how would they rate my level of emotional intimacy? And as they were playing ping pong, my oldest son, Thatcher, who was 13, gave me a six. My middle son, who's my twin, gave me a 9.75 because clearly he wanted something. And my youngest son responded with, Dad, can I have a fruit roll-up? Didn't even understand the question. So let me take a moment and level set what you define as emotional intimacy. I'm gonna read a paragraph for all those who are listening and watching, bear with me. Because this is a crucial part of this book is understanding how your emotional maturity flows out of your ability as a parent to create emotional intimacy with your, not just children, but with others in your life. Emotional intimacy involves knowing that you have someone you can tell anything to, someone to go to with all your feelings about anything and everything. You feel completely safe opening up to the other person, whether in the form of words, through an exchange of looks, or just by being together quietly in a state of connection. Emotional intimacy is profoundly fulfilling, creating a sense of being seen for who you really are. It can only exist when the other person seeks to know you, not to judge you. Now, Lindsay, I'm 55 years old. There has been no one in my life that even remotely qualifies at this level of emotional intimacy, not my parents, not my wife, not my friends, not my children. I, I'm so far from this, it's embarrassing. But I have to tell you, I feel like you set the standard really high. And I don't think I'm a sociopath. My wife thinks I'm a narcissist and she's smart. But it seems like you did set the standard pretty high on what it means to have emotional intimacy. I don't know who doesn't long for that, but how frequently do you find people that are either your patients or your friends or family that could say, yes, they have someone in their life that checks 
all of those boxes? Well, it's a fair question. Um, but think about it this way. We don't live in a state of emotional intimacy with each other every waking moment. So if you looked at it in terms of uh, who do I have that with all the time, yeah, you would, you would come up with uh, probably a zero because people are people and you're not going to have that level of uh, you know, synchronization and connection all the time with anybody. But when it, when it happens, when it hits, emotional intimacy in one form or another, you notice I, I gave a lot of different examples and forms because it doesn't have to be this big, let's sit down and have this intense discussion about our true feelings. It can be these little moments of, you know, we're both looking at the window together um, and we just, you know, have a good feeling doing that. Or somebody notices, uh, you know, a friend, my husband, whoever, notices an expression on my face and they do a double take and ask me what that's about. That, that's noticing me as a psychologically real person inside, that what is going on inside me is interesting to them and they are kind of tracking me. Not all the time, not all the time, but just enough that I don't feel like I you know, would have to uh, scream or write a letter to get their attention. They're, they're kind of hovering around the opportunity of having a connection. Now, the other thing, Scott, is that if you think about how people are with babies um, or maybe a cuddly toddler, that is also uh, a wonderful example of emotional intimacy. It's no problem at all to do that with these adorable little creatures, you know? And we naturally do that. We do the eye contact, we recognize them, we talk to them, we, we sort of mimic them, you know, to let them know that we are understanding their coups and their babbling. So it's more, um, I would say it's more constant or consistent with little children because there's so much that needs to be communicated that says, welcome to the world, we're glad you're here. When you get older, we can really get by with these little moments, these tiny moments of connection, and they actually fill us up very well. You know, Lindsay, uh, parenting is tough. Uh, I was not destined to be a parent. It is not my natural calling. It's not like my God-given talent. I actually dislike parenting a lot. Not to be confused with how much I love my children. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my children, but I'm quite vocal to my friends and family, but I do not enjoy parenting. It's actually quite unfulfilling and unrewarding for me. And I actually find that when I talk about that at keynotes and on stage, how many people walk up to me and say to me, oh my gosh, thank you for saying that because I'm so tired of hearing people or seeing people on social media or ever talk about their, their, their children breathe life into them. And, and, and there's certainly that case for people too. I maybe have been too vocal about it. In a couple of moments, I want to review with you what you call the four types of emotionally immature parents. Before we go there, I want to read a story that you shared. I'm guessing a pseudonym. You called her Rhonda. And this one kind of stopped me in my tracks, both because I was thinking about my own childhood and could I relate to that at all, 
and maybe more importantly, thinking about my children's childhood and have I ever put them in this position and would I know it if I had? Let me read Rhonda's story to you. Rhonda remembered a similar aloneness when she was seven years old, standing by the moving truck outside her family's old home with her parents and three older siblings. Although she was technically with her family, no one was touching her and she felt totally alone. Quote, I was standing there with my family, but nobody had really explained what this move would mean. I felt totally alone trying to figure out what was going on. I was with my family, but I didn't feel like I was with them. I remember feeling exhausted, wondering how I was going to deal with this on my own. I didn't feel like I could ask any questions. They were totally unavailable to me. I was too anxious to share anything with them. I knew it was on me to cope with this alone, end quote. I mean, that kind of stopped me in my tracks because it had me kind of doing a reel in my head have there been occasions when my three sons felt something similar? Would I know it? Would I be so self-absorbed in the move or the tipping or the directions or the cleanliness or whatever it was probably to slow down and make sure that my boys felt heard, understood, protected, listened to? It really made me understand something Deepak Chopra said to me on this podcast, which was, Scott, are you a human doing or are you a human being? And I am absolutely a human doing, trying to be a little more aware of being a human being. Talk a little bit more about that story and what parents that are right now listening to us are thinking and might need some guidance on. Yeah, yeah, that is that story is an illustration of emotional loneliness. That's emotional loneliness is when we are feeling something significant and usually around an issue that we need some kind of comfort or we need some kind of connection at that moment because like the girl in the story you know we're we're not knowing exactly what's going on or uh, we need some reassurance so uh, at those times it's very important for us to uh, be able to reach out and get connection it's you know it's not all up to the parent to uh, guess 24 hours a day what the child needs or what the child's feeling. We hope that we have enough of an open channel with our child that the child would, you know, turn around and, and you know, pull on her mother's shirt and say, what's going on? But unfortunately, the children of emotionally immature parents learn at an early age that if mom or dad seem tense, and something big is going on, don't bother them. You know, don't insert yourself and your needs into what is already obviously a very tense situation for them. I mean, so, you know, the child thinks twice um, about getting their needs met because they're so concerned about meeting the, uh, the, the momentary need of the parent. So, uh, so that's in, in therapy, for instance, that's where we want to go. We want to help people relearn how to actively turn to other people and ask for help because usually those 
parent-child roles have been reversed in some way in a family like that. The other thing I wanted to mention, Scott, is that the um, self-reflection that you're modeling for us today is really the key. I mean, for me, it's the basis of how any of us change and how any of us grow. Because when you can self-reflect, when something, when you read something and you think, oh no, am I doing that with my kids? Um, you are reflecting on your own behavior, which is frankly, you know, a very emotionally immature, very emotionally immature, very emotionally mature thing to do because you are, uh, you have enough of a self that you can sort of zoom out and look at your behavior in a way that would enable you to change if you needed to. So when I always say this to people who identify with things in the book and then worry that they're going to be uh, a parent like this. I always tell them that the emotion, the truly emotionally immature parent is probably not going to recognize themselves because it would require too much self-reflection. And that's a hallmark of the emotionally immature person is that they just don't do that kind of uh, self-questioning. They don't ask themselves do I have anything to do with this problem or did I cause this in some way? It's just not in their playbook. Lindsay, obviously the book is a masterpiece given how many people are reading this book and resonating with it. When I read it, I was cautious to not identify with everything in the book, right? Because you can find yourself saying, I have this symptom and this symptom and this symptom. WebMD is the worst thing that ever happened to hypochondriacs in the world, my wife included. Uh, but when I did read the book, I did find myself reflecting on the fact that I have probably spent too much time solving problems. Son, don't bother me right now, I'm, I'm fixing this. I'm getting this ready for you. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the, all the furniture moved in or I'm you know, cleaning out the swimming pool. I spent, I've spent too much time focused on solving, addressing issues for the kids than maybe I should have spent with the boys. Like for example, maybe instead of managing, quote, all the movers, metaphorically, literally, I should have been sitting down on the ground with the boys saying, hey, how are you feeling? Are you excited about this? Are you nervous about this? What are you feeling? And I don't think I've read your book too late, but for parents of young children, I think there's a cautionary tale here. When we think we're, when we think we're parenting our children through solving problems or through managing situations, we might need to slow down and say, is my time and energy being spent on the right, in the right area? Is my child standing by the moving van thinking what is going on and I'm all alone and no one has explained this to me because I would be in making sure all of the movers weren't scratching the furniture, not knowing if my children were thinking, oh my gosh, I'm all alone. And, and that's a gift you've given to me. I appreciate that. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad. But we also have to keep in mind that um, it's not realistic to expect that parents are going to be able to help their children with their feelings in the middle of something like that. Uh, because you do have to, there, there's a task going on and it's, it's, you only get one chance when they load the van to make sure that they do it right. Uh, so, you know, 
it's not that children are such delicate little beings that inattentiveness when you are trying to get something done will injure them or you know have a, a marked effect on them. It's that if there is a longstanding pattern of the parent not attending to the child's inner world, that was the case with this, this girl in the story, uh, that's when you will, it'll sort of ring a bell like, yeah, here's another time that no one is explaining to me what's happening. This is another time that no one seems to know that, that I'm scared. It's coming from a pattern, a history of not being uh, really responded to as a, again, psychologically real, emotionally real person. And so, you know, kids, kids are uh, able to get through rough times, but if the parent comes back later, you know, maybe at bedtime that night or uh, maybe, uh, you know, riding in the car to the new house or whatever, if the parent says, how are you doing with all this, bud? Uh, little things like that where you come in later and ask them how they're doing, you know, is practically just as good. And it also gives you a chance to come in later and apologize if you think that maybe you got too absorbed in the task or too absorbed in fixing something. You know, thank goodness relationships have this repair function where we can go back to each other and say, you know, I just became aware that I wasn't paying any attention to you during the, the move when the movers were there. And I want to let you know that I'm sorry. Was, was, was that hard for you? I know we were leaving our old home. And so we can always come in and, and sort of repair and fix things that we're not happy with, with how we parented. Kids are so forgiving that way. Uh, it means, but it means the world to them when we show them that we do care and that we were interested. Your book has stirred up a lot of emotions in me. I highly recommend everyone around the world listening and watching today read this book. Just yesterday, unsolicited, I was on the phone with an adult friend of mine who told me that I would be the first person he would ever call at 2 a.m. in a moment of crisis. Yet the same day my 13-year-old son gave me a 6 out of 10 on emotional intimacy, I think I have spent too long, too much time taking care of the movers and worrying about the furniture being scratched than I, hate, than I have about my 13-year-old giving me a 10 on the emotional intimacy scale. Uh, let's talk about the four types of emotionally immature parents. You call them emotional parents, driven parents, passive parents, and rejecting parents. Let me pitch these to you. Let's do a quick speed round. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we all fall into this category, right? Some of us are not emotionally immature parents. I, I didn't find myself falling squarely into one of these by any stretch. But uh, describe to us what the definition of an emotional parent is. Yeah, uh, the, um, the way to use these types is to think of them as uh, sort of the, the style or the tone of that parent's personality and their interaction with their child. 
So you may have a parent that has a little bit of two of these types, okay? Or you may have um, a parent who is a you know, very extreme version of the type or a very mild version of the type. So there's a lot of um, you know, flexibility inside each of these categories. But just, you know, just think about it in terms of it's kind of a thumbnail sketch. So the emotional parent is the parent that is uh, very emotionally immature. They usually have some history of trauma uh, or neglect. Uh, you know, something has gone wrong in their early development. And they are very emotionally reactive. Uh, everything, they're, they're kind of like the people that you walk on eggshells around. They're very emotionally reactive, take everything extremely personally. And they have big emotions. Um, they can be quite scary to children because they can get so emotionally out of control. And there's nothing scarier to a child than to see their parent become emotionally dysregulated in a big way. Because it means that that parent is completely not available to the child for help. So that's, that's, the, that's the emotional one. No, I could not associate with that at all. That one just went way past me. Um, <laughs> sure. The next one you call driven parents. Yeah, this is like, in some ways, the all-American ideal parent uh, from the outside in. Uh, this parent is driven to get things done, to be a success, to make sure their children are successes, to make sure their children have all the opportunities and resources and uh, uh, experiences that they need to do really well in our. And so these parents are often seen as sort of ideal because they are so busy and they're very involved in a bunch of things and they make sure their children are involved in a bunch of things. But this is also the parent who, if the child has a problem, they might come and uh, sit down on the bed with the child and be attentive, but they're not going to sit there and feel with the child. They're gonna be listening for the solution that they can offer the child. You know, how do we fix this? Um, how, do I, uh, how do I get my kid to see that this is not the right thing to do? I mean, it's, it's very um, strategic kind of parenting and it lacks the sit down beside you, put your you know, hand on their back or their shoulder, establish eye contact and just feel with them first. So that parent uh, ends up looking very good, but actually not meeting the child's emotional needs enough. Two for two. Uh, parent, the next one, passive parents. Fortunately, this is not, this is not described me, so, so far I'm only two out of three, but keep going. <laughs> okay, so the passive parent is probably the hardest one to recognize because this parent is often the favorite parent. Um, they, they're not like the emotional or the driven parent in that, you know, they, they're kind of reactive and moving and, you know, they're kind of, they're not frenetic. Um, they tend to be calmer. They, they tend to kind of keep things on an even keel. They often are married uh, to one of the other types and they sort of serve as a kind of a ballast 
to the marriage. They keep things steady. And they become the favorite of the child often because they do that for the child as well. They, they are the, you know, sort of like the uh, less reactive parent. And oftentimes they, they have a kind of a, a, a sweet um, sympathy for kids. And so that's all wonderful, except that because they're so passive and because they let the other parent dominate, really, and set the tone of the family, really, um, because of that, they don't step in to protect the children. So <clears throat> when their um, spouse or their partner is uh, you know, really acting out or really getting angry or whatever, they tend to let them do it. Um, and they kind of step out of the situation and let the child take the brunt of something. Now they may come in later and comfort the child, but the problem is that they're not stepping in to stop it. So that's where the, the passivity comes from. Talk to the fourth style, emotional parents, driven parents, passive parents, and then finally rejecting parents. Yeah, those, those are the parents that you wonder how in the world did they ever start a family? I mean, why did they ever start a family? Because they seem so remote and so cut off from uh, any kind of emotional connection with really anybody in the family. And so they become, uh, yeah, actively rejecting. The message is, don't bother me. Uh, don't be a nuisance to me. Don't, uh, you know, don't need something from me. And it, it has a sort of a, uh, a very hard, cold feel to their stance toward their children. Like one of my clients uh, described her dad and the way that she would want to greet him when he came home from work and he had like no patience, no time for her. And she said, it was like throwing myself against a locked door. And that's how these parents feel. Lindsay, the book is extraordinary. You intersperse almost every other page, uh, a scenario, a story, I'm guessing from some of your patients that you'd worked with over the course of the years. We could spend an hour reading some of these stories, but one of them spoke to me, not because I could relate to this per se, maybe a little bit with my mother, but I wanna read Sophie's story, and I want you to debrief it with us. I'm gonna take three or four minutes and read this story, because I think a lot of people will relate to not this exact scenario, but the learning you'll debrief afterwards. Be patient with me. Sophie's story. Sophie had been dating Jerry for five years. She had a great job as a nurse and felt lucky to have a long-term relationship. At 32, she wanted to get married, but Jerry was in no hurry. In his mind, everything was fine the way it was. He was a fun guy, but he didn't seem to want emotional intimacy and usually closed down when Sophie brought up emotional topics. Sophie was deeply frustrated and sought therapy for help in figuring out what to do. It was a difficult dilemma. She loved Jerry but she was running out of time to start a family. She also felt guilty and worried that she was asking for too much. One day, Jerry suggested that they go to the restaurant they had gone on their first date. There was something about the way he'd asked it that made Sophie wonder if he might propose. 
Sophie barely made it through dinner trying to contain her excitement. Sure enough, after dinner, Jerry pulled out a small jewelry box out of his jacket pocket. As he pushed it across the linen tablecloth, Sophie could barely breathe. But when she opened the box, there was no ring, only a small square of paper with a question mark on it. She didn't understand. Jerry grinned at her, quote, now you can tell all your friends I finally popped the question, end quote. Are you proposing, she asked in confusion. No, it's a joke. Get it, he said. Sophie was shocked, furious, furious and deeply hurt. When she called her mother and told her about the incident, her mother actually sided with Jerry, telling Sophie it was a funny joke and she shouldn't be mad. And you go on to say, I honestly cannot think of a single situation where this would be a good joke in a relationship. It's too deflating and demeaning. But as Sophie recognized later, her mother and Jerry had a lot in common as it related to their insensitivity around people's feelings. Every time Sophie tried to tell them how she felt, she ended up feeling invalidated. In therapy, Sophie began to see the parallels between her mother's lack of empathy and Jerry's emotional insensitivity. She realized that in her relationship with Jerry, she had re-entered the emotional loneliness she felt as a child. She saw now that her frustration with Jerry's emotional unavailability wasn't something new. It was as old as her childhood. Sophie had felt that sense of unconnectedness her whole life. Literally and metaphorically, I'm guessing people right now can start to make some connections as a therapist, tie that together for us. Yeah. You know, a lot of times it, it, it's, it's sort of like that, that old uh, example of the fish in water. The, the fish doesn't know it's in water um, because it's lived in it all its life. So it doesn't notice it. And the same sort of thing happens with our family dynamics. If you've been raised in a, in a family to which you feel bonded, I mean, this is your family, uh, these are familiar people, this, these are your people, you grow up feeling like whatever it is they're doing is normal and it's uh, the way people are. You have nothing to compare it to. So in Sophie's case, uh, her mother's um, invalidation of her feelings and lack of awareness of uh, her feelings, her, her lack of sensitivity, that was, just, that was just the general atmosphere of her upbringing. So when she meets a man, uh, Jerry, who has some of those qualities, you know, it, it goes right over her head. Uh, she doesn't say, oh, that hurt my feelings or... Uh, gee, why, why would he say something like that to me? Because she has been trained to not notice that or to be told that she's too sensitive or, uh, gee, why is she getting so upset over these things? We're just kidding. You, know, you get indoctrinated. It's really a form of brainwashing to think that there's something wrong with me, that that hurt my feelings. So, when Jerry comes along, he gets away with murder because she doesn't 
it, it doesn't twinge her uh, when he does these things because that's the way people who are close to each other treat each other. Okay, that's fine. But the fact is that it really does impact us. It isn't like if your family raises you that way and you think it's normal, oh, well, then it doesn't have an impact on you. Yes, it does have an impact on you. It's like anything, anything that is bad for you is going to affect you. It's going to affect your health, your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, because we have certain requirements for healthy, whole living and certain requirements to feel good about ourselves and good about our life. And when someone comes in in a very invalidating or insensitive way and lets us know that what's important is what, you know, in this case, what they find, find funny and it's being done at your expense, you probably are not going to recognize that as a real red flag. So what ultimately happened um, with Sophie is that she began to feel more and more anxious and depressed over this issue. That's why she came to therapy, okay? It wasn't that she had, uh, you know, totally realized the whole picture of what was going on. She just uh, knew that she wasn't happy and she knew Jerry had something to do with it, but it wasn't until, you know, we really had the opportunity to unpack all of this that we noticed, oh my gosh, you know, you've been living with this your whole life and now Jerry's doing it too. And yes, you do have feelings about it because any normal, healthy person would. Again, the book is invaluable, if not just for the 100 plus stories to kind of just say, can I relate to that? Am I doing that? Did I experience that? Let's finish with some solutions. You have a chapter titled, How to Avoid Getting Hooked by an Emotionally Immature Parent. Let me read for a moment, then I'll let you close us out. You write, it's hard to see our parents as fallible human beings. As children, we believe our parents can do anything Although adolescence and the independence of adulthood can weaken our view of our parents as all-powerful, they don't eradicate it. Therefore, even if they aren't loving, we wishfully think they could be if they wanted to. Certain cultural tenets also keep us from seeing our parents clearly. Most of us are instilled with the beliefs that follow. All parents love their children. A parent is the one person you can trust. A parent will always be there for you. You can tell your parents anything. Your parents will love you no matter what. You can always go back home. Your parents only want what's best for you. Your parents know more than you do. Whatever your parents do, they're doing it for your own good. It's interesting, Doc, I was about 26 years old before I realized my mother was human. Because up until then, I kind of felt as a Catholic that she was the Virgin Mary, she made all the right decisions, she was omniscient, omnipotent, that everything she did and said was right. No, my mother is human. She can be selfish, she can be petty, she can be kind, she can be generous, she can be sincere, she has feelings, she has insecurities. And it took me a while in my late 20s to kind of come to that term. My mother was a wonderful mother, did the best job she could with a really difficult upbringing 
of two parents who were alcoholics in a very unstable family. I think she did a miraculous job given that she likely was the adult child of two emotionally immature parents. The title of this chapter kind of says it all, How to Avoid Getting Hooked by Emotionally Immature Parents. Send us off with some hope. For those people that are listening today that are finding some introspection and resonating with things we've discussed about their own upbringing, what are some boundaries or parameters can we be reminded of uh, to set some healthy rules with our own parents who might, in fact, be emotionally immature? Yeah, well, the first thing to remember um, as sort of a, a, a basis for, for anything going forward is that emotionally immature parents, because they have such strong unmet emotional needs of their own, they turn to their children to put the parent in the, in the spotlight, to keep the parent's needs first and foremost in the child's mind. You know, and it's really kind of supposed to be the other way around. Um, but they, um, they train their children. This is implicit. They don't set out to do this, but this is what happens. Uh, they end up training their children out of their self-connection. In other words, they train their children not to trust their own feelings, not to trust their intuitions, um, you know, their instincts. Their, their desires, their needs. They have the child um, accustomed to always thinking twice about what they do. One is, what do I wanna do? And then the second thought should be, how's this going to affect mom or dad? What are they going to think? So the child is encouraged to always put the, the needs of other people first, and that robs them of their own self-connection, which, you know, in order to be an effective adult, in order to be, certainly to be a creative adult, you know, to live life creatively and, and resiliently, you have to be able to be connected to your sense of self. So that's the first thing. Um, in terms of recovering from this, the work of uh, regaining yourself is primary. It is basic. I had a, a client say recently, she said, you know, since we've been doing this work together, I've just felt so much happier. And I'm like, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> you get reconnected with yourself. You can feel again, you know what you want and you know, voila, you're happier. So the self-connection is primary. Secondly, you have to be able to set some boundaries uh, to be able to say no to some things that emotionally immature parents will want you to keep doing because they're used to it and they're used to being the most important person in the relationship. And so you will need to develop a sense of what's okay with you and what's not. And you can tell that by what your energy does when you contemplate you know, one action or, or the other. If your energy goes up, you know that this is right for you, that you can you have the inner resources or, or outer resources to be able to do this. But if your energy goes down, you then know I have to set a boundary here because this is bad for me. I will end up exhausted or sick or depressed or whatever. And setting those boundaries and those rules 
in any relationship, whether it's your parent or uh, partner or best friend or, you know, whatever, that is incredibly important in order for you to maintain your psychological health. So those two things, self-connection, self-growth, and setting boundaries that give you the space. I always think that setting a boundary is creating space for yourself. You allow yourself to take up space, okay, to have some room to function in. And when you do those two things, yeah, you are not going to get as reactive to the emotionally immature person, which frees up a lot of energy, and you won't get hooked, meaning you won't get sucked into uh, you know, reacting to them in ways that are uh, putting them back in the center spotlight as the most important person in the relationship, because they're two important people in every relationship. And emotionally immature people forget that piece. So you have to remind them by setting the boundaries that are going to be good for you. Beautifully said, Dr. Lindsay Gibson. This book is titled Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, How to Heal from Distant, Rejecting, or Self-Involved Parents. It's your second book. Remind us the title of your first book you released. Yeah, my first book came out in 2000, and it's called Who You Were Meant to Be. It's um, about the ways that family loyalty and feelings of guilt and fear hold us back from realizing our dreams and going after what it is that would really be the best for us in our life. And then my sense is there's maybe one more at least on the horizon. Can you share with us what's next? Yeah, the, the most recent book just came out in July, and that was Disentangling from Emotionally Immature People. Uh, and that was a little more uh, general uh, and... Lindsay, sort of wait. Wide. If you keep writing books, I'm going to have no family or friends <laughs> left. You've got to stop this. <laughs> You're going to box me in a corner. <laughs> Sorry, please keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's that book. Um, and then uh, in April, my guided journal for adult children is coming out, um, which I hope will be, will be fun for people. Dr. Gibson, your class act. Thank you for taking your time today to pour into all of our listeners and viewers about this book. Highly, highly recommend it. For me, it wasn't, it was, I, I say it was horrifying in the beginning because it, it brought up a lot of emotions it didn't make me uh, like my parents less or more. It didn't make me feel worse or better about my own parenting, but it gave me a lot to reflect on, especially with how I want to be a transition figure as a parent with my three sons, how I want to improve my relationship with my own mother. My father has passed, and maybe even pre-forgive my mother for some of the sins that I've held her accountable for that were likely just a function of how she was parented as well. So I think you've given multi-generations a gift by reading this book. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's been a total pleasure. The honor's ours. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>